Volume One, Chapter One, Part Two of Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence, read for LibriVox.org by Karen Savage in June two thousand and eight. Volume One, Chapter Three, Closed Doors. Do you think, said she, when they were again in the street, that I could get employment with any bookseller or publisher? I will try that next. Will you go with me to a respectable house in that line of business? There was no situation vacant for any one in the first two establishments they called at. In the third there was a reader wanted to correct manuscripts and proofs, and as Mr. Hogarth was supposed to be the person applying for the employment, he was asked his qualifications. When he somewhat awkwardly put forward Miss Melville, the publisher respectfully but firmly declined to engage her. "'Whatever I could or could not do, whatever salary I might ask, you object on account of my being a woman?' said Jane. "'Just so,' said the publisher. It is not the custom of the trade to employ ladies of the press. You do not know the terms or the routine of the business. I suppose I could learn them in an hour or two, but I see you do not wish to employ me, even if I had them at my finger-ends. Do you employ women in no way in your large establishment? Yes, as authors, for we find that many books written by ladies sell quite as well as others. But in no other way? Only in this, said the publisher, taking the cousins into a small room at the back of his large front shop, where eight or ten nice-looking girls were busily engaged in stitching together pamphlets and sheets to be ready for the bookbinder. It is light work. They have not such long hours or such bad air, nor do they need much taste or skill as dressmakers do. So their wages are proportionally lower, said Jane. Just so, said the publisher, and quite right they should be so. Of course. But they do not rise from stitching to bookbinding. Ah, that is man's work. I have bookbinders on the premises to finish the work that the girls have begun. And they spend their lives in this stitching. No progress, no improvement, mere mechanical drudgery. Yes, and in time they get very expert. You would be amazed at the rapidity with which they turn the work out of their hands. The division of labour reduces the price of binding materially. No doubt. For you have girls at low wages to do what is tedious, and men at higher to do what is artistic. That is a very fair division of labour, said Jane bitterly. Nay, nay, I believe our profession, or rather trade, is more liberal to the sex than any other. Write a good book, and we'll give you a good price for it. Design a fine illustration, and that is a market value independent of sex. I can neither write nor draw, said Jane, but I would fain have been a corrector of the press. From that I might have risen to criticism, and become a reader and a judge of manuscript. But I see the case is hopeless. I suppose it is not you, but society, who is to blame. Perhaps I may be reduced to the book-stitching yet. If so, will you give me a trial? In the meantime, I wish you a good morning." The publisher nodded and smiled. A most eccentric young woman, and I dare say a deserving one. But she takes hold of the world at the wrong end, said he, as she went out to pursue her inquiry elsewhere. Now, said Jane, I can release you, for I will make my next application myself. If I fail here, I really will be surprised, for I make it to one who knows me. Mrs. Dunn, the head of the dressmaking and millinery establishment where the Miss Melvilles had been initiated into these arts, had been very handsomely paid for instructing them, had always praised Jane's industry and Elsie's taste, and had held them up as patterns for all her young people. Of course she knew, as all the world knew, that they had been disinherited by their uncle, but she fancied they had other influential friends or relatives. So when Miss Melville was announced, she thought more of an order for mourning than of a request for employment. But the young lady, in her own plain way, went at once to the point. "'You were accustomed at the time I was with you to have a bookkeeper, who came regularly to make up your bills and your accounts. Have you the same arrangement still?' "'Yes, and the same gentleman. A first-rate hand at his figures, employed by many beside me,' said Mrs. Dunn. 
then he cannot miss one customer. Will you give the business to me on the same terms, for the sake of old times? To you, Miss Melville? It is not worth your having. It is only by his having so many that he makes it pay, though he is as good an accountant as any in Edinburgh. I might in time get a good many, too. Surely women might put all their work in the way of their own sex. I am quite competent. I convinced a bank-manager to-day that I was fit for a situation in this establishment, but he did not like the idea of taking a young woman amongst his clerks. You can have no objection on that score. You know I will be quiet, careful, and methodical." Mrs. Dunn was very sorry, but really nobody ever thought of having young ladies to make up their books. It was not the custom of any trade. A gentleman coming in gave confidence both to herself and to the public, and she had no fault to find with Mr. Macdonald, a most gentlemanly man, with a wife and family, too. It would not be fair to part with him without any cause. And, indeed, the business was not what it used to be. It needed the most careful management to get along, and she could not risk having a change in her establishment just at present. Perhaps by and by. "'While grass grows, horses starve,' said Jane. "'If I establish a reputation and get employment from others, you could not object to me. Every one is alike. Neither man nor woman will give me a chance. I cannot blame you, Mrs. Dunn, for thinking and acting so much like other people. I am sure it would be better for you to take a nice, comfortable situation. But I thought you had friends. If there was any other way I could serve you in, I would be so happy. If you had asked to be taken into the workroom, but I suppose you look higher. I do not know how low I may look ere long, Mrs. Dunn. It is quite possible I may trouble you again. But in the meantime— In the meantime I want you to come into the showroom and see the new sleeve just out from Paris. It would improve the dress you have on amazingly. I suppose that was made in Swinton. And you must see Mademoiselle. She is with us still, and as positive as ever, and many of the young people you will recognise. How we have all talked about you and Miss Alice lately. It was such an extraordinary settlement. Jane forced herself into the showroom, listened mechanically to the exclamations and remarks of Mademoiselle, the forewoman, shook hands with all the work-girls she had known, looked with vacant eyes on the new sleeve, and heard its merits descanted on very fully then went back into Mrs. Dunn's parlour, and had a glass of ginger wine and a piece of seed-cake with her, after which she took her leave, and Mrs. Dunn felt satisfied, for she had paid Miss Melville a great deal of attention in spite of her altered circumstances. "'Where am I to go to now?' said Jane to herself, as she again trod the pavement of Princess Street and walked along it, then turned up into the quieter parts of the town, where professions are carried on. She passed by shops and warehouses, banks and insurance companies' offices, Commission agencies, land agencies, lawyers' offices. Every one seems busy, every place filled, and there appears to be no room for me, she said to herself. I must try Mr. Macfarlane, however. He knows something of me, and will surely feel friendly. I hope he will not be so much astonished at my views as other people have been. Mr. Macfarlane, however, was quite as much surprised as Mr. Rennie or the publisher when Jane asked him for employment as a copying or engrossing clerk, either indoors or out of doors. He was quite as much disposed to exaggerate the difficulties she herself would feel from not understanding the forms of law, or not being able to write the particular style of calligraphy required for legal instruments. He had heard of the singular education Henry Hogarth, an old crony and contemporary of his own, had given to his nieces, and as his own old bachelor crotchets lay in quite another direction, he had never thought of that education doing anything but adding to their difficulties and preventing them from getting married. When the girls had been left in poverty, he only thought of their trying for the nice, quiet situations that every one recommended, but which seemed so hard to obtain, and then sinking into obscure old maidenhood in the bosom of a respectable family. 
When Jane mentioned the matronship, Mr. Macfarlane strongly advised her to apply for it, for the salary was more than she could look for in a situation, and she would probably be more independent. But as for him employing a girl as a law-writer, what would the profession say to that? It was quite out of the question. I fear I have no turn for teaching, but I suppose I must try for something better than a situation. Could I not get up classes? Oh, yes, certainly. Classes, if you feel competent. Not quite for French or Italian. My uncle was never satisfied with our accent, and we must advertise French acquired on the continent nowadays, if we want to succeed in Edinburgh. The things I could teach best—English grammar and composition, writing and arithmetic, history and the elements of science—are monopolized by men. But I must make an effort. I am sorry my dear old friend Mr. Wilson is no more. He would have recommended me strongly. But I will go to Mr. Bell. I studied under him for four winters, and though I am threatening him with competition, I know I was his favourite pupil, and I hope he will help me. I would never encroach on his field, if I could find elbow-room elsewhere." This was another long walk, and to no purpose, for Mr. Bell was away from home in bad health for an indefinite period, leaving his classes in the care of a young man who had been strongly recommended to him. The other masters she had had were not likely to take nearly so much interest in her as Mr. Bell, but she was resolved to leave no stone unturned, and went to see several of them. They gave Miss Melville very faint hopes of success. Edinburgh was overdone with masters and mistresses, rents were very high, and classes the most uncertain things possible. But she might apply at one of the institutions. Thither she went, and found that her want of accomplishments prevented her from getting a good situation, and her want of experience was objected to for any situation at all. With a few more lessons and a little training she might suit by and by. She was glad that those long walks and many interviews occupied the whole day till the time Frances had appointed for dinner. She had not the courage to face the empty house and the respectable woman-servant, till she was sure her cousin would be at home to receive her. Heartsick, weary, and footsore she felt, when she reached the cottage where Frances was standing at the door to welcome her return. "'Well, friend,' said he, "'what news?' "'No good news. I suppose I must advertise. Perhaps there is one person in England or Scotland who would fancy I was worth employing, even though I am apparently very much at a discount. Are you much disheartened?' I am very tired," said she. Rome was not built in a day. I was a fool to expect success at once. You are not too tired to go to Mrs. Rennie's with me this evening. I have ordered a carriage to call for us. Thank you. I will need it, and my dinner, too, in spite of the wine and cake at Mrs. Dunn's. Her cousin's quiet sympathy and kindness soothed the girl's aching and anxious heart. She told him her experiences, and though he was not very much surprised at the result, he felt keenly for her disappointment. She had brought a little piece of needlework to fill up vacant hours, and after dinner she took it out and soothed her excited feelings by the quiet feminine employment. There was an hour or more to be passed before the carriage came for them, and Frances sat on the other side of the fire, cutting the leaves of a new book, and occasionally reading a passage that struck him. Had any one looked in at the time, he could not have guessed at the grief and anxiety felt by both of the cousins. No, it was like a quiet domestic picture of no recent date, not likely to be soon ended. Jane's sad face lighted up with an occasional smile at something said or something read, and Frances Hogarth saw more beauty in her countenance that evening than William Dalzell had ever seen in all the days he had spent with the supposed heiress whom he meant to marry. End of Volume 1, Chapter 3, Part 2 This recording is in the public domain.